Hi, sexies, and welcome back to the Sexual Debut Podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Popovich, and today I'm a little bit sick, so please excuse my voice and the disgusting mouth noises that I make in the episode. Today we have a repeat guest and my very good friend, Bree, and we're going to be talking about some things related to sexuality from the Victorian era that are really fun and I think you'll enjoy So without any further ado, here's the episode, babes. Hey, Brie, welcome back. Hello, I'm so excited to be back. Yeah, so Brie, the episode with Brie did really, really well. And Brie and I, I feel like, have really good conversation and banter and lots of things to talk about from different areas of um, sexuality. So we're going to do a kind of different episode today. Um, We're going to talk about a topic that Brie is very well researched and interested in, and um, she's just kind of going to explain that topic to me, and I will be having a real-time reaction with all of you listening in. So if you want to go ahead and tell us what we're talking about and how we got here. I would love to. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, So I wanted to start, so I want to talk a little bit about my background and then um, into what we're going to talk about today. So I studied history in undergrad, and I'm just like a huge history nerd, but it's been a while since I've been like really into the field just because it was, I was just an undergrad degree. Um, And then my thesis was about like women's roles in sports in Title IX, pre and post Title IX in the Mm -hmm. 70s. And then when I studied abroad, I took a lot of like religious history classes and African marriage system classes. Um, and my degree itself was really varied, but just lots of history. Um, and I think as an adult history is so interesting, I think it connects with our field so well because so much of what mm-hmm. we understand to be normal, quote unquote, like behavior and dress and, and everything in relationships is like built from um, like our history in the past. And um and I'm just a huge nerd, and I'm really excited because we're going to talk a little bit today about some fashion history, which I am not, like, academically well-versed on, but I mm-hmm. just think it is so interesting how clothes and fashion and, like, the idea of famous entities, like, people, like, famous fashionable people kind of mm-hmm. develops and changes as we go. So today we are specifically going to talk about a few different topics in the Victorian era, and I'm also going to establish um, what the Victorian era kind of is and um and I'm, I'm going to talk mostly about clothes and then you said you want to talk about something that I know a tiny bit about but not very much so I'm so excited so I think we're going to start by saying just so we understand context the Victorian period was when when Queen Victoria was ruling England which is from 1837 to 1901 so that's the time period that we're talking about today so okay Sophia you want to do yours yeah perfect I'm excited too because this topic is not something that I would say the average person who doesn't have a uh, robust understanding of the Victorian era, myself included, like would think of as a era that had much to do with sexuality. I feel like the general understanding that it's very repressed and not very sexual. So I think we'll go into how that is actually less true than we thought it was. It's funny because it's it's simultaneously true and not true because the Victorians specifically, the Queen Victoria kind of defined the era and she was known as being really kind of modest and I almost said demure, that she was not demure. She was just really modest like personally and I would say her professional, like her 
outward behavior was really modest and really family oriented and the victorians are this combination of like known to be incredibly sexually repressed and mm-hmm. so wildly horny and weird simultaneously so it was like <laughs> publicly really repressive and like really pretty anti-sex but then at home and in private weird as shit and it's so fun because you have this specific combination of those things which are two of the things i think personally are so so interesting yeah it definitely makes for interesting sexual like history um a lot of communities even currently that are super repressed also have like some freaky um fun sex did we talk about um what is it called soaking did we talk about that in our episode i don't know if we did it's funny because I was actually just talking to a friend, I hope that she listens to this episode, about soaking, <laughs> and she used to be Mormon, and one of the funniest things about soaking is that it's, like, not really a thing that Mormons did, oh, um, gosh. but now it probably is, now that it's become, wow. like, We culturally. gave them the idea. Exactly, and maybe some people were, but it wasn't popular. They always do this thing, I was literally just hanging out with her, and we were talking about NICMOs, which are non-committal makeouts. Is where you oh just like God. make out with somebody for four hours and you end up probably each of you are coming because, but it's just like oh my dry humping <laughs> hours and hours. And then sometimes you'll never even hang out again or it's just like it's non committal. So, you, oh and my it's God. so funny. Yeah. So soaking isn't really a thing, but Nickmos are like more of the things. And I hope it's a thing. I would love to talk to somebody who is in, in a <clears throat> moment right now. That is so, oh my gosh. That sounds like, um, mormon tantra oh my god Actually, honestly i feel like you you have to be so embodied to like just make out can you imagine like lip chafing making oh, out god. with somebody for four hours that has facial hair oh no i don't want to <laughs> imagine that. Babe. oh that's that's very intense okay well i'm glad that i know that now um i didn't want to spread any information about soaking so i'm glad that you could clear it up it's so, um, it's I love it. It's so funny. So pivoting back to what we're going to be talking to or talking about today. So I wanted to like just include something that I learned about recently. Um, And I'm always delighted when I learn about something new and like sexuality or um, sexual subculture doesn't happen that often anymore. But I'm always down to learn about new things. So a friend of mine who loves to send those like um, holiday text chains, like the really horny ones. um, (laughs) They are the resident like friend of mine that sends those to me so I can look forward to it every holiday. But there was something in this one about peppermint pussies and I was just I was like you know that the idea of a peppermint peppermint on a pussy doesn't sound great to me like just knowing what I know about using Dr. Bronner's um like the peppermint kind and getting it in that area um <clears throat> cool. you so soap in your eye by the way no I've I've got, I got it in my eye in my eye and it's horrible I it's bet so it doesn't bad. feel good yeah. on any of the mucous membranes. Mm-mm. I mean, I guess you're, if you're into it, so foreshadowing. Um, so my friend rep- replied and said, "It gives me figging vibes, don't you think?" And I was like, "What is what is figging? I've actually never heard of that. I had to look it up, of course, and was really delighted to learn um, that figging is a practice in BDSM where you place a 
peeled ginger root into the anus or the vagina. It's more popularly in the anus. And in the um, little urban dictionary definition, it did reference that it started during the Victorian era. And I looked into it. I actually found an article on figging.com where they talked about that. They talked about this being um, something that they weren't familiar with and did a pretty deep like research dive into finding a source that um, corroborated that figging was done in the Victorian era and there was some kind of anecdotal evidence so we're not entirely sure it's not well documented but it may well have been something that started in the Victorian era because they were watching um, some of the things that were happening to horses um, that were being sold at the time Um, And that is a a technique that used to be done that started apparently in the medieval era um, called gingering or feeging, um, spelled F-E-A, feeging, F-E-A-G-U-E. So that started the medieval times and it was done by horse salesmen. Yeah, because it was was made to make them look like lively. Like make yes. them look more like um they especially they do it. My understanding is they would do it to horses that were kind of sick, to yeah, make or them, old, or old to make them look a little bit more spry, have some more spring in their step. Yes, it's terrible. Um, but that's what the um hypothesis where that came from maybe in the Victorian era is because they were using mm-hmm. things like crops and um things that would be used in equestrian kind of spaces and they got inspired oh, they were already using crops for bdsm or like uh-huh. kink related stuff and they're like oh yes. well we use this this is a horse tool why don't we use other horse tools yes oh that's fascinating yeah so i thought that was very interesting um and obviously what happens here um is that the peeled ginger root is um creates a very intense burning sensation I also read some pretty fun um, historical fan fiction about this, um, but that is a topic that I wanted to share with everyone else because fan I hadn't heard of is, it. Well, maybe we'll have to talk about fan fiction sometimes. It's not a topic I actually Please. know that much about, but it's fascinating. Yeah, but you know a lot about like romance novels and smart. Yeah. Which I'm going to talk a little bit about in my section. Perfect. So I'm so excited. So yeah, that's, that's figging. Um, and... I'll think about maybe doing some kind of segment like this in upcoming shows if you all like it. Let me know. I'll pick like a time period and then you'll get a little like snippet from that. That'd be fun. I would like that. Yeah, we That's could trade so off. Fun. Um. Oh man, I'm that. I did not even think about the connection with figging if they were already because crops were like interesting to think about how why they started using crops and then the things they connected like mm-hmm. that chain of events is fascinating. Yeah, apparently also called gingering for horses, not for people. Cool, cool, cool. That... And they also apparently, name. I know, they apparently Wait. used um, eels before they used ginger for horses. Oh, no, I heard about that too. Yeah. Look, I'm curious <sighs> with, I'll have maybe I'll have to find somebody who's done figging IRL and see what the aftercare looks like for figging. Like, I'm curious if you need, what how, how you would, you just need to probably cleanse really well with the burning after i'm just curious what that yeah i well my friend actually who brought it up has 
experience doing it um, with someone else. And mm. what they said is that they immediately began uh, crying and shit themselves. So. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's. Oh, man. I'm glad. I, I Honestly, I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad I knew what the immediate result was because that's, yes. that's not surprising that that's your body's no. reaction. It. And also, so the term feeging is where the term figging comes from. Mm -hmm. So figging was the practice with the horse, mm -hmm. um, medieval, um, and figging is what we like colloquial turned it into. Oh, wow. Oh, <clears throat> thank you so much, Sophia. That yep. was excellent. Yep. Okay. okay, so I'm going to talk about two things today. The main thing I'm going to talk about is the origin of the kind of modern white wedding dress. And the okay. second thing I'm going to talk about is Prince Albert piercings. So those are the two Fuck. topics that Incredible. I'm so excited about today. Um, and I also want to talk a little bit about kind of trend cycles. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you should post on the on your um, Instagram page the picture mm -hmm. of her wedding dress later because okay. I have I think it'll be helpful if people look and they'll have an easy place to look. Um, yes, I can I describe it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so thir first thing I want to talk about is like fashion history. So thinking about where clothing comes from and trend cycles and who are influences in I was thinking a lot about this and I thought about um the Devil Wears Prada in that whole oh, Cerulean favorite scene movie. where it's like this person did this and then Cerulean whatever I can't say it right but the curators of fashion and who um creates the legacy of like color and texture and design and the Devil Wears Prada is such a good kind of pop culture reference to that um yes. and we I want to think about kind of who is the public public face of clothes especially before social media and um in america we have a lot of our like uh fashion culture and like public face of it comes from especially in the 20th century and the 19th century comes from our first ladies so the president's wives i would say especially people like jackie o she's kind mm -hmm. of the most recent example of that who is jack john f kennedy's wife and they would really the influencer I know, yeah. So, like, I think a lot about um, the way in which the Kennedy family, especially, had this like pub public persona and appearance, but their like the way that the public interacted with them was really curated. It was really controlled mm -hmm. in a way that influencers aren't quite the same polished. Yeah. The people I could think of that were equivalent were like the Kardashians, and I think Taylor Swift is a really good example of a very curated public image. And, yeah. and I would yeah. say like. The royal family used to be kind of still, but then with like, I would say the Meghan Harry stuff has really kind of changed some of our access to their family in a way that they don't love. But I think like the there are families still and people who have that same curated public image. Um, and I want to compare those versus people like kind of the traditional social media stars that are, I would mm -hmm. say are are more relatable and are supposed to be more relatable than like the royal family is supposed to be. Right. Um at this point, not anymore, though. I saw a really interesting, like, thing about just how influencers were meant to be, like, you know, relatable, and they've delved into, like, completely unrelatable territory at this point. Mm -hmm. And I would say, like, there's a lot of stuff with TikTok right now about kind of yes. creators who became famous because they were supposed to be like everyone else, but now their job is to be an influencer, and that makes them fundamentally unrelatable and right. puts, pushes them into this higher echelon of fame that's different. And I, I just want to compare, yeah. I think Victoria and the the royal, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert specifically really re utilized the camera and gave mm -hmm. people access into the British royal family, their day-to-day, -day, like their actual physical image in a way that other royal families hadn't been able to and hadn't done before. 
So mm-hmm. she was really popular for a lot of reasons, but especially because people got to actually see, because with with paintings, there is still a control over that image with editing and like there uh, there's different art periods that changed how realistic art was, which is a separate conversation. Um, like some art movements were really focused on realism, but a lot of them were not. They're kind of focused on this like dreaminess of what the royal family represents versus what the royal family actually looks like, which are different things. Um, so, so the, yeah, so the, the, like Queen Victoria and Prince Charles really <laughs> utilized photography. And so you have access to them in a way you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually wanted to go back and remind, so the Victorian period is that period between 1837 and 1901. And, um, and the periods in British history are really defined by the monarchs that was ruling at the time. And gotcha. so, and, um, I was thinking about this also with, um, uh like different like the most popular in like the romance genre because i really love romance books is often the Mm -hmm. regency period and the regency period i wrote this down was technically between 1811 and 1820 but really colloquially considered uh 1795 to 1837 so like butting up right into queen victoria's rule um and it was called the regency because there was like a king who couldn't like functionally run the state anymore and so his eldest son was appointed as i wrote it down down the eldest son was appointed as the prince regent which is why it's called the regency era okay Um, Okay. and which continued into when that son became king it just just still because the same king the same guy was in charge still um and the reason why the regency period is so popular with romance books fun fact is because that's when jane austen was writing and so so much of what we understand as the genre of romance was created during that time and so that's partially why it's so popular because I went on a tangent in my research and I wanted to share that little fact because I was excited about it. We'll talk That's about what research is. Lots That's of little exactly. rabbit holes. Because I was looking and I have, I'll maybe I'll send you my sources. You can at least put the links in. Um, sure. Like I don't have that many. Um, but yeah, that was fun. So Queen Victoria, the big deal. She was queen for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I want to like also acknowledge as we're talking about this, the like reality of talking about a ruler who was like the most significant colonial power on the planet like queen victoria was was the queen when into kind of her her like offspring her and her offspring created what we know to be the british empire and like a lot of pretty horrific things happened under her rule and i want to like acknowledge the like thing this like weird balance you have to maintain when you're talking about history to like recognize the things that happened and the things because that's not what we're talking about today but I don't know. I just wanted to recognize the like millions of people that died in India under British colonial rule and under the British East India yes. Company. Yeah. Good acknowledgement. Maybe not a friend of the pod. Yeah. Maybe Queen Victoria, not a friend of the pod. <laughs> I, I agree. I, that's a great, I love putting it that way. Um, so Queen Victoria. Oh no. I wrote down when they got married. Couldn't tell you right now. Couldn't find it. But um, she married Prince Albert, and they had nine kids together. They had so many kids, and she was, like, famously yeah. a mother. <clears throat> she was kind of the, known as the queen mother and was – a lot of the re- the Victorian period was, like, really – that's partially why they were so, like, like, women's role is this, and they really defined what, like, upper-class roles looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of know her more famously as like more young, older. Now we know her as this kind of older dower woman. Cause after Albert died, she was very obsessed with him. They were like very, very in love. 
and she wore black for the rest of her life. He died pretty young. Wow. Died, um, in his mid forties, and she wore black. She wore mourning garb for the rest of her life. So she was like known as this fashion icon up until that point, and then like really stopped caring as much about how she looked after his death. So it was like really that cool. of itself is iconic. I know. Yeah, that you wear black literally for yes. like 30, 40 years. I'm not sure how long she lived after that. So her, she dressed really modestly. And so a lot of her era was also defined as a more modest period of dress in general. So before Queen Victoria's wedding, it was actually really unusual, or not really unusual, it was pretty uncommon for women to wear white on their wedding day. Um, mostly because lower, like poor women generally wore their nicest clothes they had. And those nice clothes were very rarely white because white is really hard to maintain unless you're quite wealthy. Mm -hmm. So they kind yeah. of wore their Sunday best. And sometimes if you were like a little bit more wealthy, you'd get a new dress for it. But you're going to continuously wear the clothes you wore for your wedding until they fall apart or until like you pass them down or whatever happens. Mm -hmm. And often wealthier women would wear really bright colors on their wedding. I, I call it I call it like kind of peacocking. Mm -hmm. Like they're trying to be flashy. It's their wedding day. Right. They want to be noticed. And so wearing white happened sometimes, but it just wasn't that common. Yeah. Um, and so a fun fact, though, I learned this. Technically, Mary, Queen of Scots, was the first to wear white to her wedding in the 1500s. But she just wasn't really as influential. It was a long time ago before. And I think a lot of the reason why Victoria became so popular is because of photography. Um, but it's kind of wild. Oh, she got married to him in the 1840s. Albert and Victoria got married in the 1840s. Found it. Um, but it seems like wild to understand how significant her wedding dress was now. But I also thought about like remember Princess Diana's dress being like such a mm -hmm. huge, huge deal. Think about like royal weddings. People just don't have a lot. They're kind of bored, and they're like, oh, this is a cool yeah. dress. I guess. <laughs> um, and so, um, her dress was influential in part because it was the first royal wedding to be photographed with photography it wasn't color photography obviously because it was in the 1840s but it was the first mm -hmm. actual physical copy of the dress that people had ever seen for a royal wedding um it was like white and poofy and lacy um the kind of lace that was on it is this lace i think it's from devon and that lace from that region of devon became like wildly popular and she like blew up the industry in this area of the country um in my theory, I think, I couldn't find this, like, substantially, but I, I'm pretty sure that this is where, like, her dress is where, like, the princess style of dress comes in. If you go wedding dress traffic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut. and it has, like, it's that, like, V that goes down on the waist and the poofy waist is that, that's that mm -hmm. princess cut. And I, I'm pretty sure that's where that term comes from in, like, popular use now. Because mm -hmm. um, she was a princess when she was getting married, right? And then she was yeah. a queen. Yeah, I'll double check that. Yes, she was not. I don't think she was married yet. Or she was a very young queen. Okay. Um, I know that technically Albert was the prince regent. He was never okay. known as the king because the king holds a specific kind of power in the British royal mm -hmm. system. Um, so she actually may have been. No, she, I think she was because she became queen in 1837. She became queen pretty young. Okay. Um, they got married in the 1840s. So she was already queen, which is partially why it was such a big deal, right? Like, you don't see a lot of actual, of, like, the British nobility getting married when they're um, actually royal, like, officially king or queen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and it's really, one of the most interesting things I found about her dress is that um, 
it's in just a few decades after their wedding, wearing white was seen as what brides had always done. And it because uh-huh. it was like that second generation of brides. So it's women who watched or knew that their mom had worn white or wearing their mother's dress grew up. And then that became standard cultural practice that they believed like there was books that came out a few decades after their wedding that were like brides have done this since time immemorial like this is just what brides do so it's interesting seeing the way that the the things that we see about white dresses today that like purity virginity like chastity this like i think also cleansing that white is supposed to be which is also complicated in a lot of ways so yeah. much of that was actually put onto her after. So it wasn't the reason why she wore it necessarily, but it became this like cult idea of like, why did she wear this color? Oh, because she was a virgin and virginity, purity, whatever. And right. it, it's interesting the way that that was placed onto her. Um, and then it just became kind of the snowball. Within a few decades, it was like, brides wear white because they're virgins, you nasty whore. Like, it pretty quickly became this, um, like, cultural expectation. And then that was kind of passed on into the U.S. from there and kind of propagated throughout the world. It's super interesting how enduring an image like that can be because it Mm -hmm. was so, uh, you know, photography and sharing of media was so, so slow compared to what it is now. And... I'm sure following that, you know, it wasn't, there was no such thing as trend cycles back then, but there was, there definitely were, not the same as we have today, but also, I mean, a lot of the, like, I I don't know a ton about, I can't, not not seasonally at least, no, not season, not the way that, no, more like every five to 10 years. Yeah. It's just the, the trend cycle and how like fast that, that happens now is really interesting to think about in comparison. I know fashion historians can talk a lot more than I can about like the way in which modern silhouettes are impacted by different historical eras of clothes in Europe. Um, I know, like, think about things like the Empire Waist um, mm-hmm. is from, oh God, I not think of all my timelines. Empire Waist is more like Regency era, kind of, and the Empire Waist is supposed to be coming from Greek and Roman fashion. And then that influenced fashion in the 70s, which influenced fashion in the thousands, like this, like, kind of cascading effect of silhouettes especially with women's clothing you can follow them i've seen something about how the 60s were very influenced by medieval like kind Mm -hmm. of motifs um it's interesting to see how they research but yeah a lot of um like finish work on clothing and and um oh god like velvet and the the materials used and a lot of oh there's like cording and stuff on clothing all it's supposed to come from different areas. It's I fashion history is fascinating to me. Yes. It's super robust. So much to like I don't know where they even start, but And you can be so specific. Like there's people who mm-hmm. study the specific part of a specific era and it's oh, it's so cool. So that's most of what I had in I'm making sure I I think that's everything I had about this section. Um <clears throat> And I think I, I, I was especially fascinated by that I didn't I had not seen her dress in a long time. I know I'd seen it before, but how much I could even see like a lot of 80s style dresses that were so similar to that 
Yes. Um, that silhouette, again, that all the lacy and like the way the waistline looks and stuff, which was so cool. I mean, I feel like even Princess Diana's dress from the 90s had some really reminiscent like elements. Was it originally um, that kind of cream color or was that, does that, did that come from aging? I'm pretty sure it was lighter. If you look at pictures of her, it looks mm-hmm. a lot brighter than that. I think if the picture is pretty yellowed, um, I don't think it was originally that color. Oh, I'm uh, even looking I at it now, wrong. and it looks, um, the bodice, like, it looks like a lot of corset tops that I've seen really popularly now. I like can't the... remember, but that, that, that V that goes down off the waist, I can, there's a name for that silhouette, and I can't remember, but totally, like, a lot of that, the boning structure, it mm-hmm. all, it's all connected. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Do you want to talk about Prince Albert piercing? I've been the most excited for that. So, yes. So, first I wanted to talk a little bit about Prince Albert's role in the royal family because I think it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I have I was trying to look and kind of find a comparison point and his role reminds me actually a lot of what first ladies do uh today I- in the US. Oh. So he was really specifically, I said this earlier, but he was really specifically not given the title of king. Mm -hmm. Um, He was given the title of prince regent. And he was given some other titles on top of that. He had some other titles already, of course. Um, But they really didn't want to give him any titles that would elevate him above Victoria. But also they really ruled, did a decent amount of ruling together because Victoria was this combination of like, she was literally the monarch of a country but really focused on the idea of gender roles between and spouses especially. So she played this weird role of being like publicly very much in charge, but really trying to give Albert control domestically in many ways. So I would say if you watch The Crown, similarly to what Elizabeth was navigating um, in like early seasons of The Crown, but differently because older. Um, Seen that. Of like trying to figure out that balance of your identity as a wife and really, really valuing that kind of traditional and establishing these traditional roles, developing what those roles look like to you as the queen having all this power, but not wielding that in her domestic life. But Prince Albert, when they got married, took on a lot of um, philanthropic roles and did a lot of like pick to cause. You know how like every first lady like picks a cause to be important? He had some of those. I can't. I didn't write what any of them were, but that's a lot of what he did. Um, so and... Prince Albert's reminding me, of course, with my rotted brain, more of a real housewife than a monarch. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, he is. He, yeah, he just has his little his little hobbies and his little groups that he volunteers with, and, <laughs> um, which I think is fascinating. But the the origin of the prince albert piercing is pretty unknown actually but he it is named after him mm-hmm. um and so the a prince albert piercing is a piercing that runs it goes on the underside of the penis like through the urethra um mm-hmm. it can be a few different shapes but generally it's a ring um it depends but the ring is the most like works the best in that piercing it's a pretty thick gauge piercing because it has mm-hmm. to be to be like not uh, pulled out um yes. <clears throat> and so there's a few different thoughts on where the where it comes from the most common is that men's pants in that era were crazy tight 
but having like a large noticeable penis was not seen as seen as gauche she was seen as like <laughs> tacky i would say similar to where like the romans thought about penises they would like tie them up and stuff and so, so they the idea is that men would get this piercing we had a ring in it and they would use it to tie their penis down and out of the way so it wasn't noticeable under garments so um, they were getting piercings at this time oh yeah oh yeah wow. and the piercing and they don't know for sure again because victorians didn't like talk about this stuff very much um but yeah so it's a tight-fitted clothing like really tight on the crotch and so they would tie i it's not quite the same as tucking but i would call it like a similar way in which i it sounds like they were kind of tying it on the side or like underneath between their legs um and using that that hook that or the the ring on the penis to tie it back to um like their undergarments to keep it out of the way they're pretty sure prince albert had it and their people seem pretty sure that um he uh got it before he knew victoria or knew he was getting married to victoria it wasn't something he did he's a little bit older than her okay um so he and there's like a lot of that's like one of the origin stories it didn't really wasn't like in the victorians like just were didn't talk about stuff like this so it's super hard to tell like if that's like how much of that is become like a old wives tale or like a story that has been told by piercers but that it seems like like very possible at least because if you look at pictures like those pants were so 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 tight like functionally it does make sense in theory but in practice who knows what like actually they were doing um with their weird little gen not their weird little jungles but um (laughs) And then it became more ubiquitous as a name in the 90s. It became a more popular term in like the, sorry, the 1990s, let's be specific. Yes. Um, yes. And it became something that was more popularly done by piercers. Something I'm desperately curious about, to be honest, is who was doing the piercing and how mm-hmm. often said piercings get infected? Yeah, actually, I know a little bit about that. So the weird thing with piercings that you would expect to be actually a little bit more difficult to heal, like something in the mouth or something um, on the genitals, actually heals a lot better than something, say, on like the surface of your skin or an ear or a nose because it is a mucous membrane and it, like, um, the urethra flushes out and is like constantly has fluid moving through it. Oh, um, and it's like sterile <clears throat> to you. Yeah, and it's a mucous membrane, so it's constantly secreting um, fluids. So it's if there's anything that's in there, it's going to get discarded at some point. So yeah. I know among piercers, the genital piercings are actually um, pretty easy to heal. I read that it's a specifically fast, um, quick healing times. And it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, because of the quick healing times, you're less likely to get like uh, keloids and stuff and infection. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just so fascinated with all these like wealthy men who who is I mean maybe I'm curious if it was maybe barbers because barbers were surgeons also often and so they yeah. knew how to use sharp objects and stuff so I'm curious and they were also cutting hair so that was one of my theories is maybe they had some combo jobs of also doing piercings on rich men to tie their dicks back. Interesting, I'm sure maybe maybe even like madams or sex workers at the time maybe oh that's a good point 
and especially like if prince albert got it before he and he was he grew up i don't know much but i didn't look up much into his background but i know he grew up very wealthy and titled mm-hmm. and he had like a history before he met and married victoria did you look into any of the significance of prince albert piercings in um the gay community not not like in modern i just looked at the origins of the name i don't know specifically but i know that it is significant. I've even seen um, some like piercers talk about genital piercings being um, gender affirming in some ways. Um, yeah, I've heard about that with um, like labia piercings, like that add weight for like trans men. Mm-hmm. Okay, so full transparency for those listening, I am cheap, and Zoom Premium is fifteen dollars a month. So I, for every episode that I've done we break around the 40 minute mark because that's when the free zoom um like meetings cut off so we did a quick little break and got sucked into looking into some articles in the meantime and just with a cursory google search about the significance of prince albert piercings in um like subcultural communities like bdsm and kink and uh, the gay community i couldn't find much because I only looked at it for a little bit. Um, I did see that Tiger King has a Prince Albert. Um, of course he does. Of course, a the little bit surpri- about the least surprising fact no, I've heard in my entire absolutely life. not it's an incredible. And um, of course, there is some talk about the uh, increased pleasure and different um, sensation with sexual stimulation with genital piercings. And I also, you were talking about, um, you wonder who did these kind of piercings back in the Victorian age. Um, but even in modern day, relatively modern day, um, the reason that these piercings can be seen as coming from like the BDSM community is because those were some of the only people who were comfortable doing it in professional settings. Um, Mm -hmm. up until that point, people were piercing them, um, themselves or, getting people to pierce them um like friends to pierce them for them which i think is a funny and uh queer rite of passage i have quite a few dorm room piercings and tattoos i can't imagine piercing my own genitals no i i can't either that is so much more brave than i will ever be something that i was thinking about in our like minute our article reading minute is also that like just laughing at the increased um like the 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 three part of like increased pleasure from potentially from genital piercings albert victoria love each other so so much they had nine kids like those people could not stop fucking and you know mm-hmm. i have some questions for them now because i was laughing about yeah that is it common for people i know that it was uh encouraged to have that many kids was it common for someone to actually have nine living children i don't actually well that's complicated i, I think I mean, access to wealth makes such a big difference with, like, how much right. you're going to be okay through pregnancy. Victoria had access to the most, like, the best doctors that they could afford. And also, I mean, to some extent, sometimes you get, like, quack doctors because that's what people know, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't, I mean, I think living through and having, I don't actually, she, they had nine kids. I don't know if all of them lived to adulthood. Like, we can okay. check that fact. I'm not, Okay. I'm not sure if all of them did. Um but for like wealthier people that have access to good medical care and like a lot of it just has to do with biology like her body just could take that and keep doing right. it 
Uh, I'm curious the point. Well, maybe we'll, I can check later. It doesn't matter now. Like how old she stopped having kids. Um, uh-huh. That makes a difference too if they started using birth control eventually or something. But having nine kids, giving birth nine times and having them all at least live like through birth is not that wild. Like it, it does okay. a lot of kids, a lot of pregnancies, but it's not unheard of. I mean, they were saying nine kids is a lot still for people in that era. Um, I don't think it was shocking or like uh disturbing to people okay interesting also for those listening full transparency if my voice is just icky today on the audio it's because i'm sick and um we're recording this the day before it's released because i want to be consistent for you all and i'm also sick and just got home from traveling last night at about like 12 o'clock so that is me telling you how much i love you all for listening um and being consistent for you all i didn't realize that you got in that late i knew that you got in yesterday i didn't realize it was like you'd barely been home yeah the i i took um a cheaper flight with a layover in atlanta so uh, it was a little bit late too so i got in around uh like 10 45 like 11 um yeah that's okay though oh, look at us we're doing it though yeah so this episode was kind of a test run but we have plans in the future to do more like this because i think that brie and i can have some very interesting conversations and i am not brave enough or resourced enough to come on here and do episodes continually by myself i'm not that interesting so i've interesting and i want to do i think we're planning on i'll do your sexual debut history questions episode yes. which i'm so excited for yes 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 that'll be fun oh wow that was i had so much fun i actually had a lot of fun it's i did like probably in total about maybe two hours of like research and writing stuff out the last few days but mm-hmm. i forget how much i just love doing i think it's so fascinating and i really yeah. enjoy doing it and it wasn't that hard like especially the difference between this and writing a paper is I can I'll probably just send you the links to the sources that I mm-hmm. use um, but I'm yeah. not like having to cite everything perfectly so it's yeah nice a little less like structured and fun- and formal which is really fun for me because I always think of history as like gossip like it, that's mm-hmm. how it should feel and sound like to some extent yes um, and it's way <clears throat> easier to do that when you're not paying and that is from page 15 of whatever Yes, I was going to say doing the podcast for me has been fun in the the same way because I love research and sometimes creating a paper or a finished product like that makes it a little bit less fun because you have to be so detail oriented. But I found a reignited interest for that through the podcast and also in one of my um, last classes with you where I did a presentation on Anna Nicole Smith that went way Um, over time and I had to cut it off so early because I was just like telling it like a story like a a gossip kind of sesh I'm excited because my project for that class was about swimsuits and like yeah I thought you were going to talk about it today no that's going to be a different episode different time period okay sweet different time period that's more into the like uh the beginning of that story is in like the 1950s 1910s Okay, see, that shows how warped my perspective of history is. It's good to have a historian because I'm not history-minded. When people could start showing knees in public. Right. (laughs) Yes. 
that took a long time so public swimwear took a long time to order i would say more of like the, the bulk of that is coming from the 1910s and on there's some stuff further back but it's still not really fully into the it's more into like the late 19th century than into the um into the early 19th century okay heard well that feels like a good place to wrap up if you have any parting thoughts you can share them now or we can get out of here no i think my my official line that is everyone go use their public library that's all i have use your public library. i like that one incredible you have to keep plugging that one don't don't follow my instagram i don't care (laughs) i i just i just knit and do crafts and talk shit about freud i do talk mad shit about freud freud and i are mortal enemies Maybe we'll have a, a Freud shit talking episode. The entire episode is just talking magic about Freud. That sounds incredible. Yeah, let's do it. Future podcast. Okay, perfect. That's all I wanted to talk about today. All right, perfect. Well, I will see y'all in the outro. And thanks for coming back on, Brie. Thank you so much. No problem. Congrats on making it through another episode of the podcast, y'all. If you are liking what you're hearing... I'm sure you're tired of hearing me tell you what to do, but I'm going to tell you anyways. There are a few things that you can do to let me know. You can go on Spotify and leave me a rating. You can go on Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating and a review. If you leave me a review, I'll read it on the podcast. And if you want to suggest any future episode topics, any guests, tell any stories, or just let me know what you're thinking, you can do so by emailing me at sexualdebutpodcast at gmail.com or you can DM me at the Instagram, the Sexual Debut Podcast. And if you would like, you can give me a follow over there as well or drop some comments in on a few of the pictures that I have posted. Thanks so much for listening, y'all.